welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thanks for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Paris Commune, we covered the siege of Paris by the Prussian army. Surrounded by a seemingly unstoppable foe, the odds did not look to be in the city's favor. But the country was led by a new government, the government of national defense, which made it top priority to attempt to win the war against Prussia by any means necessary. Several times, the ragtag defenders of Paris attempted to advance beyond the walls of the city to take the fight to the Prussians directly, but each successive attempt failed miserably. As the government of national defense proved itself incapable of facilitating, well, uh, national defense, the left grew increasingly dissatisfied. Two abortive left-wing uprisings took place during the siege, one in October and one in January. Both of these failed, but this did not portend well for the future stability of the government should it continue to fail to deliver on its promise to expel the Prussians from the country. The citizenry of Paris had to endure a grueling winter. As food stores began to run out, Parisians turned to eating rats, horses, and even zoo animals. The hopelessness of the situation was impressed upon the government of national defense later in January, when the Prussians began a bombing campaign to inflict terror on the city, hoping to induce a surrender. It had the intended effect. The government of national defense soon dispatched its minister, Jules Favre, to go negotiate with German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck demanded rather harsh terms of the French in exchange for an armistice, a sizable sum of money as war indemnities, and the disarmament of all combatants within the city. Favre correctly pointed out that attempting to disarm the National Guard would result in nothing less than civil war, but the government of national defense was in no position to make or change demands. On January 26, 1871, the government of national defense surrendered Paris, and with it France itself, to the newly declared German Empire. Taking top priority among Germany's demands was for France to establish a new, legitimate government, one that would have the enumerated powers necessary to finalize a peace treaty. So the Germans mandated that France hold elections as soon as possible. Said elections took place on February 8th. Monarchists won a majority of the seats in the National Assembly, 62%. They were divided between Orleanists and Legitimists, with Orleanists in the majority. Republicans only won 35% of seats. Of these, 6% were Radical Republicans or Socialists. Most of these came from Paris, including Louis-Charles de la Clouse, Félix Piat, Victor Hugo, Victor-Henri Rochefort, and Georges Clemenceau. How were the monarchists able to win by such a huge margin? The most immediate explanation is that the war had delegitimized both the Bonapartists who had initiated it and the Republicans who allowed it to drag on for far longer than it should have. While the people of France didn't necessarily pine for a return of the monarchy, they did want a conclusive end to the war, and the monarchists promised to deliver just that. The new National Assembly elected Adolf Thiers as president. He was the obvious choice for the role. He was a demonstrably competent statesman with years of experience on his resume, and his Orleanist sympathies were well known. Furthermore, his was a name that many recognized and respected. He was one of the few statesmen who had emerged from the war with his reputation mostly intact. Thiers immediately set to work on negotiating a peace treaty, and by the end of the month, he was ready to present the National Assembly with a preliminary version of it hopes that Thiers would be able to secure France a more favorable deal at the negotiating table were dashed. As per previous agreements, 
Alsace and Lorraine were to be ceded to Germany. Additionally, France was to pay war reparations equal to 5 million francs. To his credit, Thiers was able to talk Bismarck down from his original position of 24 million francs. Until the 5 million franc indemnity was paid in full, the country was to be partially occupied. The terms of the Treaty of Versailles of 1871 were so harsh that one cannot help but draw parallels to the 1919 treaty of the same name that concluded the First World War. Many at the time accurately predicted that this treaty was nothing more than a ceasefire, and that France and Germany would inevitably go to war again sometime in the near future. But, for the time being, France could ill afford to continue the fight. The treaty was ratified by the National Assembly 546 to 107. Leftist delegates and the delegates representing Alsace and Lorraine were scandalized that the National Assembly would even consider such a treaty. Many abstained from the vote and resigned. During the negotiations between Thiers and Bismarck, Thiers agreed to allow German troops to briefly enter Paris until the treaty was ratified. In exchange, Bismarck agreed to leave the strategically significant town of Belfort under French control. But, with the hated Germans entering the city and the National Guard still at arms, tension was high. If hostilities between the Germans and National Guard broke out, it was a real possibility the war might resume. On the morning of March 1st, 1871, Kaiser Wilhelm I, at the head of 30,000 troops, triumphantly marched down the Champs-Élysées toward the Tuileries Palace, where they would set up camp. Instead of the National Guard's guns, the worst the German troops were subjected to was the verbal abuse from the occasional onlooker. Once they arrived at the Tuileries Palace, the soldiers were dismissed. For two days, the victorious German soldiers wandered around the city like a group of tourists, seeing all the sights. These unlikely tourists were not given the privilege of Paris's hospitality. Most Parisians had locked themselves in their homes. The streets were deserted, buildings across the city were draped in black, as if in mourning, and businesses refused to serve German soldiers. Anyone suspected of fraternizing with the Germans was ostracized by their friends and acquaintances. The National Guard did not attempt to fight the Germans as was feared. Rather, they barricaded off certain neighborhoods of the city and threatened to shoot any German that dared enter. None attempted. After two days passed without incident, the Germans received word that the National Assembly had ratified the treaty, and thus they were obligated to leave the city. As they left, Parisians scrubbed the roads to symbolically rid the city of the Prussian taint. After the ratification of the treaty, Thiers and the National Assembly were put in a difficult position. Five billion francs was no paltry sum. From where were they to get this massive sum of money? The National Assembly saw it fit to pass a number of austerity measures to this end. Any and all rent payments and debt repayments, the collection of which was suspended during the siege, were now to be paid in full, in only two days' time. New taxes were pushed through, and the pay of the National Guard was suspended. Such austerity measures did little to endear the population of Paris to a National Assembly they already felt did not represent them. The perceived mistreatment of the city by the National Assembly prompted the leftist elements of the National Guard to organize a union of sorts. The majority of its battalion commanders formed the Central Committee of the National Guard. They no longer considered themselves beholden to the orders of the National Assembly, and they refused to accept General Dorel de Paladin, whom Thiers had recently appointed as their commander. The vast majority of National Guardsmen approved of such measures. Less than 1% of National Guardsmen remained loyal to the central government. What really concerned Thiers and the National Assembly 
was the fact that the National Guards had come into possession of 200 heavy cannons. They had requisitioned these earlier in the month, on the pretext that they belonged to the people of Paris, and had been paid for by them through taxes. This presented Thiers and the National Assembly with an even more significant problem. How were they to enforce their new laws with an insubordinate armed force of 300,000 men in effective control of the capital? At first, Thiers asked the Germans to occupy the city entirely. This would, of course, involve fighting the National Guard. The Germans refused. With no recourse, Thiers ordered General Vinoy, who remained acting military governor of the city, to seize their cannons. If this could be done, Thiers supposed, the National Guard might be compelled to surrender. Under the cover of darkness on the morning of March 18, 1871, Vinoy, at the head of around 12,000 regular soldiers, ordered his men to surround the neighborhoods of Belleville and Montmartre, where the artillery was being held. The men had been successful at Belleville, but the men sent to Montmartre ran into a bit of a snag. They had infiltrated the premises and secured the 170 cannons there without incident, but once there, they realized that they had no horses to carry them away. A nearby National Guardsman noticed them and attempted to raise the alarm when he was shot and wounded. He was, however, able to make it back to the National Guard's local headquarters at the Chateau Rouge Ballroom. Louise Michel, a member of the Central Committee, slipped past the soldiers and spread the news of this treachery. By sunrise, the soldiers had still not managed to move the cannons an inch, and now they were being surrounded by an angry mob of National Guardsmen. The soldiers' commander, General Claude Lecomte, ordered them to fire on the crowd. His men refused. He then ordered them to prepare their bayonets and form a defensive perimeter around the cannons. Once again, they refused. Gradually, his men began to defect, raising their rifle butts in the air as a show of solidarity, and proclaiming, Down with Vinoy, down with Thiers. General Lecomte was taken into the custody of the National Guard and dragged to the Chateau Rouge to be put on trial. Georges Clemenceau, the radical Republican mayor of Montmartre, tried desperately to defuse the situation. He ordered the local captain of the guard to ensure the general's safety, but the situation was already out of control. The crowd wanted blood. While General Lecomte was receiving his show trial, another captive was brought in. It was General Clement Thomas, the former commander of the National Guard. He had been wandering around the premises in civilian clothing, attempting to gain intel about the situation. The crowd erupted into a rage, demanding the immediate executions of both men. The National Guardsmen handling the proceedings asked for a show of hands as to who thought the men should be executed. All present raised their hands. The defendants were then dragged into the garden, beaten, and shot several times. Upon seeing their broken, bullet-riddled bodies in the street, Clemenceau broke down and wept. Throughout the day, the news of the National Assembly's betrayal prompted the northern and eastern sections of Paris to rise up in revolt. Rebellious National Guardsmen seized symbolically and strategically important buildings throughout the city. Vinoy was forced to withdraw entirely, lest he suffer the fate of Lecomte and Thomas. Taking notice of the situation, the Central Committee of the National Guard decided to send men to the Hôtel de Ville to arrest the treasonous scoundrel Thiers. That evening, National Guardsmen arrived to find the building deserted. The entire government, along with Vinoy and his men, had evacuated to Versailles earlier in the day. The National Guardsmen entered the building unopposed and flew a red flag, a symbol of socialist revolution, from its windows. The events of March 18th took everybody by surprise. 
the Central Committee of the National Guard included. All of a sudden, Paris was under their complete control, and, as always with the revolutionaries, there was no unified consensus as to the next course of action. Much like what had happened on October 31st, the leaders of the Central Committee began to bicker and argue amongst themselves. The Blanquistes among them suggested that they march on Versailles in pursuit of the central government. Louis Michel offered to assassinate Thiers herself. Ultimately, the Central Committee decided on a more tempered course of action. Most of them had no desire to replace the national government. What they wanted was municipal autonomy for Paris. They would encourage the other cities of France to follow suit and rise in revolution themselves, but there would be no great march on Versailles to overthrow the government. In other words, they wanted Paris to be independent of the National Assembly and their unjust laws, though not necessarily to be its own sovereign entity. The Central Committee made arrangements for a new municipal council to be elected at the end of the month. While the Central Committee of the National Guard was fully in control of Paris, the mayors still claimed to be the legitimate governing body of the city. Some of the more moderate mayors attempted to facilitate negotiations between Thiers and the Central Committee. As early as March 19th, these mayors, represented by Georges Clemenceau, met with representatives from the Central Committee. Clemenceau warned them that to maintain their course of action would result in civil war. He urged the National Guards to cede their power to the mayors, who would then be able to negotiate with the National Assembly for municipal autonomy. A representative of the Central Committee, one Eugène Verlan, replied with a list of revised demands of the Central Committee. Going beyond just municipal autonomy, these included elevated status for the National Guard and the suspension of debt repayments, among other things. The mayors agreed to bring these demands before the National Assembly, and, if they were accepted, the Central Committee agreed to lay down their arms and surrender the city. Unfortunately, Chier was not predisposed to negotiation. Some historians have suggested that his refusal to negotiate with the Parisians was because he actually desired conflict the entire time. He saw this as the perfect opportunity to rid Paris of its troublesome left-wing elements once and for all. The only reason why he had not struck back already is that he was biding his time, waiting for prisoners of war to be repatriated from Germany until he was certain he held the numerical advantage necessary to crush this rebellion. Chier refused to entertain the demands of the Central Committee and, furthermore, refused to listen to the intercessions of the mayors, whom he considered to be just as radical and just as troublesome as the National Guard. Following their failure, the Central Committee also ceased contact with the mayors, seizing their offices and declaring their mandate to be null and void. The Central Committee of the National Guard would now be the sole governing body of the city of Paris, at least for the time being. While Thiers was gathering his forces at Versailles, he sought to garner support inside Paris itself, to undermine the revolution from within. He fired General Dorel de Paladin as the head of the National Guard, and replaced him with a man named Jean-Marie Saisset, an elderly admiral who had served with distinction during the siege. He tasked Admiral Saisset with organizing elements of society, the National Guard in particular, that remained loyal to the National Assembly. This would prove a difficult task. Even before the National Guard rebelled, its ranks were overwhelmingly working class. Many upper and middle class people had left the city once the siege was lifted, but very few remained. Mainly, they were located in the first and second arrondissements, or districts. Saisset managed to make contact with some of these people, a group of reactionaries informally known as the Friends of Order. On March 21st, the Friends of Order amassed and began to march to the Hôtel de Ville. 
Some hoisted banners emblazoned, Long Live the Republic, and others carried tricolor flags. On their way to the Hotel de Ville, they were halted by the National Guard. They were ordered to disperse, which they did not. Seeing as how some of the protesters were known to be carrying guns on their person, it is hard to say who fired the first shot. But, whatever the case, shots were fired, and by the time the crowd had fled and the smoke had cleared, two National Guardsmen and nine Friends of Order lay dead on the street. Of the incident, Karl Marx writes, quote, One volley dispersed into the wild flight the silly coxombs, who expected that the mere exhibition of their respectability would have the same effect on the revolution of Paris as Joshua's trumpets on the walls of Jericho, end quote. The fact of the matter was, blood had been spilled. At this juncture, reconciliation between Paris and Versailles was made all that much harder, if not impossible. Municipal elections were held five days later. Only half the pre-war population of Paris voted, and Thiers declared the election was a victory for the Friends of Order. In reality, the exodus of middle and upper-class residents from the city following the armistice skewed the results in favor of the left. I would like to quickly point out that, despite all of the revolutionary rhetoric about equality, and given the important roles that French women will play in the events to come, women were still not allowed to vote in French elections. It would not be until 1944 that they finally won the right to vote. Anyway, 92 councilmen were elected, one for each 20,000 inhabitants. 64 of them were leftist revolutionaries. 22 moderate and radical Republicans were also elected, but most of them announced their resignation at their first opportunity. Eight councilmen were elected in absentia, including Blanqui, who is still imprisoned somewhere off in the countryside. Two days after the elections, the 64 councilmen who ultimately constituted the commune were inaugurated in a grand patriotic ceremony. National Guardsmen paraded down the streets while bands played patriotic songs. The members of the commune lined up on a platform in front of the Hotel de Ville, adorned with red sashes. Adolphe S.C., a captain of the National Guard, attempted to give a speech, but his words were drowned out by the crowd. During a lull, S.C. announced, quote, In the name of the people, the commune is proclaimed. End quote. Another quote from Prosper Olivier Lissagere. In response, a thousandfold echo answered, Long live the commune. Caps were flung up on the ends of bayonets, flags fluttered in the air. From the windows, on the roofs, thousands of hands waved handkerchiefs. The quick reports of the cannon, the bands, the drums, blended in one formidable vibration. All hearts leaped with joy, all eyes filled with tears. Never since the Great Revolution had Paris been thus moved. End quote. The members of the commune were supposed to convene that same night in the Hotel de Ville, but in yet another characteristic folly of the revolutionary left, nobody from the Central Committee of the National Guard had been selected to hand over the keys to the building. The members of the commune couldn't gain entry into their place of work until they were able to find a locksmith and have the locks changed. Once they were inside, the pressing matter was to decide how this new government was to be organized. There was no readily apparent natural leader present. It was proposed that Blanqui serve as president, but again, he was still being held prisoner at an undisclosed location. The council members elected 76-year-old failed banker Charles Bezlay as their temporary leader. This was only by virtue of him being the eldest present, and his role would remain strictly ceremonial. The commune decided to divide their legislative duties between nine committees, 
with the executive powers being given to a tenth. One of the first acts of the newly constituted commune was to suspend the detested Rent Act. Enacting state secularism was also a top priority for the new government. Decrees were issued which declared all church property to now belong to the people, and which secularized religious schools. Most importantly, measures were taken to protect and improve the lives of the workers. Child labor was abolished. Regulations were set on the amount of hours a worker could be made to work. Perhaps most radically, provisions were made that allowed for workers to take over and run their own workplaces in a democratic manner. The commune also took measures to ensure that public services remained operational, and to ensure that there was enough money to pay the workers. Lisa Jarret estimated that the daily cost of this was so high that the treasury would run out of money in about a week. The communards then turned to the banks, but instead of outright seizing their assets, which were worth around 2 million francs, they merely took out a loan of 500,000 francs. This, in Lenin's view, was one of the two main reasons why the commune inevitably fell. What was the commune's other cardinal sin? Not immediately marching on Versailles and taking out the National Assembly while they still had the chance. Lisa Jarret shares this view, stating that, quote, The commune's mania to be legislating when it should have been preparing for the final struggle was among the seeds of its defeat. End quote. While the communards were preoccupied with administrative duties, Thiers was busy making preparations to go on the offensive. By the end of March, he had managed to muster about 60,000 troops. The army of Versailles soon began launching incursions against Paris, probing the city's defenses for weaknesses. On the 1st of April, the Revolutionary National Guard clashed with troops from Versailles in the Parisian suburb of Courbevoie, now home to Paris's business district. The fighting centered around a strategically important bridge that crossed the Seine River into the city proper. Battle cries of Long Live the King were answered with calls of Long Live the Commune. The National Guards were able to hold out against the first wave of attacks, but after the second wave they broke ranks and retreated across the bridge. During the fighting, Major Pasquier, a widely respected surgeon from among the ranks of the Army of Versailles, was killed. Differing accounts of the incident exist. The Versailles government claims that Pasquier was crossing the bridge under a flag of truce and was senselessly gunned down by the National Guardsmen. Others claim that the man carried no flag at all, and the National Guardsmen assumed him to be a regular officer and shot at him. Whatever the case, the killing of Pasquier caused righteous indignation back in Versailles. It soon became common practice for any communard captured under arms to be summarily executed. The commune responded in kind. On April 5th, they issued the controversial Decree on Hostages. Under this new law, any prisoner of war, or anyone suspected of cooperation with the Versailles government, was subject to immediate arrest and trial by special commission. If convicted, these prisoners were now hostages of Paris. Any execution of a communard prisoner of war was to be met with the execution of three hostages, chosen by lottery. All of this was despite the fact that mere days earlier, the Commune had, perhaps a bit prematurely, abolished the death penalty. The events of April 1st were also cause for outrage in Paris. The oddly tranquil atmosphere that had pervaded the city after the inauguration of the Commune gave way to agitation. The leadership of the Commune was now convinced of the necessity to make war against the government in Versailles. A proclamation was issued reading, quote, The Royalist conspirators have attacked. Despite the moderation of our attitude, they have attacked. Elected by the population of Paris, it is our duty to defend the city against the guilty aggressors, and with your help, 
we shall defend it. End quote. The Communard leaders resolved to march on Versailles. Approximately 27,000 National Guardsmen were to advance on Versailles in three columns. One was led by Gustave Florenz, whose companions had broken him out of prison during the abortive insurrection of January 22nd. The centermost column was led by Emile Ayudes, that Blanquiste student who was arrested for his involvement in the raid on the fire station before the collapse of the Empire in September 1870. The final column was led by Jules Bergeret, an officer of the National Guard who is really not that relevant. The sortie was, as usual, poorly organized. The force that left from Paris at midnight on April 3rd is described as being more similar to a mob than an army. Communard leaders were depending on sheer force of numbers and revolutionary fervor to get the job done. What they did not know was that the fortress of Mont Valerien, which was directly along their route, had been reoccupied by the army of Versailles back on March 28th. Elie Recluse, a geographer who was in Paris at the time, writes the account of a National Guardsman describing what happened next. Quote, we were betrayed. We were told that Mont Valerien was ours. Not at all. The Versailles were holding it. They waited for us to be gathered together in a mass on the road, and while we filed by them, not thinking anything at all, they suddenly opened fire on us. Panic and rout. They made more noise than they did harm, but even so, we lost many comrades there. They cut us in two. The first third of us continued forwards, but it was impossible to rally the others. I saw men who shot furiously in the air at the fortress. Another of our men, matter still, shot and killed a nearby horse that was pulling a cart. End quote. As it turned out, force of numbers and revolutionary fervor alone were no match for heavy artillery. Even as two-thirds of the men broke ranks and fled, Bergeret and Florenz decided to keep pressing forward, and led what men they have left towards Versailles. The communards were then set upon by the Army of Versailles cavalry. Bergeret and the majority of the remaining force retreated. Florence's second-in-command, an Italian anarchist whom he knew from the Cretan War named Amilcari Cipriani, begged him to follow suit, but he refused. Florence and his few most loyal companions pressed on, arriving by nightfall at the village of Rouet, some 13 kilometers or 8 miles from Versailles. There, Florence entered an inn and collapsed of exhaustion. The following morning, he walked out of the inn, unarmed, to see the village was surrounded by enemy cavalrymen. Cipriani and the others attempted to mount a desperate defense, but Florenz merely stood out into the street, smoking a cigarette, whereupon a cavalry officer charged at him and cleaved his head in two with his saber. Cipriani survived and was taken into custody. Florenz's body was thrown onto a manure cart and hauled back to Versailles. The first communard leader had been killed, and he would certainly not be the last. Despite his initial victories, however, Thiers held his army back. His current force of 60,000 was, in his estimation, insufficient to recapture Paris. He dispatched Jules Favre to once again negotiate with Otto von Bismarck. If the Germans would not help Versailles put down the revolt, at the very least, they could rescind the articles of the treaty that limited the size of the French army. Although Bismarck was initially delighted that France was being torn apart by internal strife, he began to fear that if the commune was to gain too much power, it would embolden the socialists back home in Germany. So he acquiesced, and he altered the terms of the treaty to allow the French army to reach a size of 170,000. Additionally, he agreed to speed up the process of repatriating the French prisoners of war. One of these recently returning prisoners was General Patrice de McMahon. McMahon was a staunch conservative, 
and, above all, he was eager to redeem himself for his failure at Sedan. Thiers dismissed the unpopular General Vinoy as commander of the army, and appointed McMahon in his stead. McMahon immediately began to make preparations for a second siege of Paris. Meanwhile, in the city, the communard leadership reacted to the failure of the sortie by having the men responsible for the debacle arrested, including Bergeret, and the commander of the National Guard, Charles Lullier. Replacing him in this role was Gustave Paul Clouseret. Clouseret was a mercenary, much like Florenz and Cipriani. His travels had taken him everywhere from Algeria to Ireland. He also offered his services to the Union during the American Civil War, and he reached the rank of Brigadier General before retiring. Now, he was faced with the daunting task of defending Paris against the Army of Versailles. Clouseret made no secret of his contempt for the National Guard, stating that he had never seen an organization in such a state of anarchy. He made it his mission to reform the National Guard into a more professional army. To this end, he separated the entire force between active and sedentary contingents, with the latter being relegated to police duties. To lead the active National Guard, Clouseret appointed two Polish émigré officers, Jaroslav Dombrowski and Valery Wroblewski. Dombrowski and Wroblewski had similar backgrounds. They were both Polish nobility and had joined the Russian army at a young age. They were both committed to the cause of Polish independence and led Polish revolutionaries during the ill-fated January Uprising of 1863. Following the defeat of this uprising, both immigrated to France, a popular destination of exiled Poles. Dombrowski had previously positioned Trochu to authorize the creation of an all-Polish unit during the siege, but his request was denied. Now, the commune was in desperate need of his and Wroblewski's services. Since they were two of the four officers in the commune's army with any prior military experience, the other two in question being Clouseret himself and his second-in-command, a man named Louis Rossell. Dombrowski and Wroblewski would prove to be two of the most competent leaders of the commune. The army of Versailles continued to put pressure on the city, but still held back from an all-out assault. McMahon's troops and the National Guard fought back and forth over the village of Noilly, on the outskirts of the city proper. From the commanding heights of Mont Valerien, the army of Versailles unleashed a bombardment on Paris, which eyewitness testimony asserts was several magnitudes worse than the Prussian bombardment. The village of Noilly was razed to the ground. Cannon fire reached into the city proper as far as the Champs-Élysées. The Arc de Triomphe was hit no less than 27 separate times. Artillery shells began to land dangerously close to the foreign legations, prompting the British ambassador to France, Lord Lyons, to issue a warning that, quote, any British subjects who continue to remain in Paris do so at their own peril. He had not done so at any point during the Prussian siege. By late April, Thiers and McMahon had grown confident enough in the strength of their forces to begin their assault on Paris. Thiers decided that the most strategic location to enter the city was at the extreme southwestern edge. To facilitate a breakthrough there, it would first be necessary to capture Fort D.C. On April 25th, Thiers agreed to a temporary ceasefire to provide humanitarian relief to the poor, beleaguered inhabitants of Noilly. Little did the communards know that Thiers was taking advantage of the lull in action to transfer his artillery southwards in preparation for his final assault on the hotbed of revolution. Meanwhile, back in Paris, the communards furiously continued legislating, oblivious of the catastrophe that was to befall their nascent government. Among the measures adopted by the commune at around this time were 
heightened salaries for National Guardsmen and school teachers, the creation of workers' syndicates, limiting the salary of communard politicians to 15 francs a day, granting alimony to any woman seeking divorce, the creation of subcommittees to enact further social and economic reforms, and most curiously, the abolition of conscription. And that is where I will leave things for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time to watch as the citizens of Paris are besieged once more, this time by their own government, and as the commune desperately fights to keep the revolution alive. In the meantime, if you have any questions, concerns, requests for future episode topics, things of that nature, you can address them to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the episode description. Alternatively, you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Also, if you like this episode, please consider giving the show a favorable review on iTunes. In any event, I'd like to sincerely thank you for listening. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.